This is VOA News via remote. I'm Tommy McNeil. Nominations in the race to replace British Prime Minister Boris Johnson have closed with eight conservative lawmakers securing enough support from their colleagues to make the first ballot. Candidates needed support from at least 20 conservative lawmakers to remain in the contest for runoff votes starting Wednesday. Candidates who met the threshold include former Treasury Chief Rishi Sunak, Foreign Secretary Liz Truss, the Trade Minister Penny Mordaunt, and backbench lawmaker Tom Tugendhat. Uh, former Health Secretary Shavid Javed failed to make the cut. Conservative lawmakers will reduce the race to two candidates through a series of elimination votes before the final pair is put to a ballot of party members. And Johnson quit last week as party leader after months of scandals. The president of Sri Lanka fled the country early Wednesday, days after protests stormed, protesters stormed his home and office and the official residence of his prime minister amid a months-long economic crisis that triggered severe shortages of food and fuel. The president, Godabaya Rezapaksa, his wife and two bodyguards left aboard a Sri Lankan Air Force uh, plane uh, bound for the city of Mil, the capital of Maldives. That's according to an immigration official who spoke on condition of anonymity because of the sensitivity of the situation. Rajapaska has uh, agreed to step down under pressure. The Pentagon said Tuesday that it killed a leader of the Islamic State group in Syria in a drone strike. U.S. Central Command said in a news release that uh, uh, Maher al-Ghal was uh, killed Tuesday. An unidentified senior official in the Islamic State group was seriously injured. The Pentagon said that there was no civilian casualties, though it wasn't possible to immediately confirm that information. This is VOA News. The Biden administration is calling on people to exercise a renewed caution about COVID-19, emphasizing the importance of getting booster shot for those who are eligible and wearing masks indoors as two newly highly transmissible variants are spreading rapidly across the country. The new variants labeled BA4 and BA5 are offshoots of the Omicron strain that has been responsible for nearly all of the virus spread in the U.S. and even more contagious than their predecessors. White House doctors stressed the importance of getting booster doses even if you have recently been infected. A new study published Tuesday calculates just how much climate-related loss richer countries have caused poorer countries through their carbon emissions. The figures published in the journal Climatic Change by two Dartmouth College professors quantify what scientists, officials, and activists have long called the inequity in national climate histories, with the rich nations benefiting and the poor ones hurting, but some in the climate community say that more than information is needed to enact the change needed to make rich countries pay for loss and damage they've caused poor countries through emitting carbon. Twitter has sued Tesla CEO Elon Musk on Tuesday, trying to force him to complete his $44 billion takeover of the social media company by accusing him of outlandish and bad faith actions that have caused the platform irreparable harm and wreaked havoc on its stock price. Back in April, Musk pledged to pay $54.20 a share for Twitter, which agreed to those terms after reversing its initial opposition to the deal. But the two sides have been bracing for a legal fight since the billionaire said Friday that he was backing away from his agreement to buy the company. 
Twitter's lawsuit opens with a sharply worded accusation that Musk refuses to honor his obligations to Twitter and its stockholders because the deal he signed no longer serves his personal interest. Three Americans were quietly jailed in Venezuela earlier this year for allegedly trying to enter the country illegally and now face long prison sentences in the politically turbulent nation. Now, two of them men, a lawyer, even Hernandez from California, and computer programmer Gerald Kinnamore from Texas were arrested in late March, just days after President Nicolas Maduro's socialist government freed two other Americans following a meeting with the U.S. officials in Caracas. The latest arrests come amid efforts by the Biden administration to unwind the Trump-era policy of punishing Maduro for what they consider his trampling on Venezuela's policies and democracy. There is more at voanews.com. Fire remote. I'm Tommy McNeil, VOA News. Today is Wednesday, July 13th, and this is VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedofo in Washington. Coming up in the next half hour, Ukrainian forces strike a Russian ammunition depot in the southern part of the country as the war grinds on. The Ukrainian military's southern command says a rocket striker targeted the facility in Russian-held Novokakhovka. U.S. President Joe Biden arrives in Israel Wednesday for his first visit to the Middle East since taking office. Israel would love to hear President Joe Biden announce diplomatic relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia during his visit to the Middle East. And the World Health Organization says COVID-19 remains a global emergency nearly two years after it was first declared. We'll have these stories and more next on International Edition. Stay tuned. Ukrainian authorities say their forces have targeted a Russian ammunition depot in southern Ukraine overnight, resulting in a massive explosion captured on social media. Associated Press correspondent Charles de la Desma reports. The Ukrainian military's southern command says a rocket striker targeted the facility in Russian-held Novokakhovka, about 35 miles east of the Black Sea port city of Kherson, which is also occupied by Russian forces. The precision of the strike suggests Ukrainian forces used US-supplied multiple-launch high-mobility artillery rocket systems, or HIMARS, to hit the area. Russia's TASS news agency has offered a different account of the blast, saying a mineral fertilizer storage facility exploded. I'm Charles Diladesma. Rescue workers on Monday pulled more bodies than some survivors from an apartment building destroyed by a missile strike that killed 30 people in eastern Ukraine, while a Russian bombardment killed at least three in the second largest city, Kharkiv. Lauren Anthony of Reuters has more. The death toll following a Russian missile strike on an eastern Ukraine apartment block rose on Monday as rescue workers pulled bodies and survivors from the rubble. At least two dozen people have been killed in the city of Chasivyar, located in the Donetsk province. Emergency services picked brick by brick through the wreckage of the destroyed five-storey block, demolished by a rocket on Saturday. Reuters video showed rescuers lift a survivor from the ruins to a stretcher and carry away the bodies of two people in white bags. Speaking to Reuters on Sunday, 
Resident Venera described the attack. I have two kittens. I wanted to save them, but I was thrown into the bathroom. It was all chaos. I was in shock, all covered in blood. By the time I left the bathroom, the room was full of rubble. Three floors fell down. I never found the kittens under the rubble. The attack on Chasiv Yar was part of Russia's push to capture all of the industrial Donbass region in the east, partly controlled by separatist proxies since 2014, after declaring victory in Luhansk province earlier this month. Also on Monday, Russian bombardment killed at least three in Ukraine's second-largest city, Kharkiv, according to the regional governor. Valentina Popovichuk was saved from a shell department block. I saw lights, the headlights of rescuers, and I started screaming, I am alive, please get me out. The rescuers entered the hallway, knocked down the door, and took me out. The civilian deaths have driven home the human cost of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which is now in its fifth month. Military experts say Russia is using artillery barrages to pave the way for a renewed push for territory by ground forces. Moscow denies targeting civilians, but many Ukrainian cities, towns and villages are left in ruins. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said Russia had carried out more than 30 airstrikes since Saturday alone. That's Lord Anthony of Reuters. As parts of Europe endure sweltering heat, fears are growing of a cold winter ahead. This after Russia's Gazprom energy company cut off a key pipeline to Germany this week, ostensibly for routine maintenance. The move has sparked alarm, and as Lisa Bryan reports from Paris, it's intensifying European Union efforts to slash energy consumption and find alternatives. Officially, Gazprom's maintenance work on its Nord Stream 1 pipeline was long expected and unlikely to last very long. But German officials say anything is possible. Moscow has already curbed gas deliveries to nearly a dozen European countries in recent months as they pass ever-tougher sanctions over its war in Ukraine. The bloc has agreed to end Russian coal imports and phase out Russian oil this year. Doing so with Russian gas is tougher, however. It accounts for 40 percent of the EU's overall consumption and even more when it comes to countries like Austria and Germany. Here in France, Prime Minister Elisabeth Borne says Gazprom's latest cut should accelerate the transition away from fossil fuels. The French government also plans to nationalize its EDF energy company, partly over fears of a looming power crisis. Now the race is on to find solutions. The Paris-based International Energy Agency has released a 10-point plan on how the EU can reduce its reliance on Russian gas and climate emissions. We need a very broad suite of low-emission technologies. IEA energy expert Brent Wanner says that suite should include nuclear power and other energy sources. Wind and solar PV are now 
two of the cheapest options for, for new electricity, new sources of electricity. But ultimately, we need to have multiple options in order for countries to be able to choose their own path with their own circumstances. The EU's executive arm has also outlined 2030 energy savings targets of 13 percent, which a block of powerful EU parliament parties wants to make more ambitious. But that doesn't solve Europe's immediate energy headaches as prices soar and a potential winter time heating crunch looms. Brussels research group Bruegel says Germany, for one, will have to cut its natural gas consumption by nearly one-third to ensure it will have enough supplies during the winter months if Gazprom's temporary cutoff becomes permanent. Lisa Bryant for VOA News, Paris. U.S. President Joe Biden arrives in Israel on Wednesday for his first visit to the Middle East since taking office. He will fly directly from Israel to Saudi Arabia, a move the U.S. leader called, quote, symbolic, unquote. Israel hopes the visit will pave way for eventual full diplomatic relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia. Linda Granstein reports from Jerusalem. Israel would love to hear President Joe Biden announce diplomatic relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia during his upcoming visit to the Middle East. Israeli analysts say that while diplomatic relations are not likely to happen now, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is gradually moving in that direction, along with other reforms. President Biden is expected to announce a regional defense group, including Israel and Saudi Arabia, building on recent summit meetings between Israel and its regional Arab partners. The Palestinians will not be invited to join these regional alliances, which they have vehemently opposed. Although President Biden will meet Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas during this Mideast visit, Palestinian leaders are frustrated that Biden's visit is more focused on deepening regional alliances with Israel than on addressing the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. On his stop in Saudi Arabia, President Biden will seek to repair relations damaged by the killing of Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi, a U.S. resident, in 2018. Biden is expected to push for increased OPEC oil production to replace Russia's oil. When it comes to the Iranian threat, Israel and Saudi Arabia have much in common, and analysts agree a U.S. diplomatic push could help expand the new ties in the region. Linda Gradstein for VOA News, Jerusalem. The World Health Organization said on Tuesday COVID-19 remains a global emergency nearly two and a half years after it was first declared. The emergency committee, made up of independent experts, said in a statement that rising cases, ongoing viral evolution, and pressure on health services in a number of countries meant that the situation was still an emergency. Cases reported to the WHO had risen by 30 percent. WHO Director Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus. Cases of COVID-19 continue to rise, putting further pressure on stretched health systems and health workers, and also concerned about the increasing trend of deaths. The Emergency Committee on COVID-19 met on Friday last week and concluded that the virus remains a public health emergency of international concern. The committee noted their concern about several interlinked challenges. First, subvariants of Omicron like BA4 and BA5 continue to drive waves of cases, hospitalization, and death around the world. Second, surveillance has reduced significantly, including testing and sequencing, making it increasingly difficult to assess the impact of variants on transmission, disease characteristics, and the effectiveness of countermeasures. Third, diagnostics, treatments, and vaccines are not being deployed effectively. 
As transmission and hospitalizations rise, governments must also deploy tried and tested measures like masking, improved ventilation, and test and treat protocols. I urge governments to regularly review and adjust their COVID-19 response plans based on the current epidemiology and also the potential for new variants to appear. Governments should also work to reverse the reduction in surveillance, testing and sequencing and share antivirals effectively. As WHO Director General Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus. In other news, a new study published Tuesday calculates just how much climate-related loss richer countries have caused poorer countries through their carbon emissions. The figures were published in a journal Climatic Change by two Dartmouth College professors. The numbers quantify what scientists, officials and activists have long called the inequity in national climate histories with rich nations benefiting and the poor ones hurting. But some in the climate community say that more than information is needed to enact the change needed to make rich countries pay for loss and damage they've caused poorer countries through emitting carbon. For more on this story and other breaking news, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Remember to connect with us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Search for VOA Africa. You're listening to VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedua for in Washington. The International Committee of the Red Cross warns hundreds of millions of people in sub-Saharan Africa are going hungry due to conflict, climate shocks, and rising food prices triggered by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Lisa Schneider reports for VOA from Geneva. The ICRC warns Africa's food crisis is set to worsen. It says conflict and armed violence, failing harvest due to years of drought, and increases in food and other commodity prices are driving more people into extreme poverty and hunger. A recent UN assessment estimates 346 million people on the continent face severe food insecurity, meaning one quarter of the population does not have enough to eat. The ICRC Regional Director for Africa, Patrick Youssef, says the situation is urgent. He warns many lives will be lost without a concerted effort by different actors to meet the challenges ahead. He says aid agencies, international financial institutions, and governments must collaborate to prevent the humanitarian crisis from becoming irreversible. As we look at 2023, we know that this will repeat itself. This climate shock, these climate shocks will repeat themselves. The food insecurity will remain as acute as it is. It will not end with a calendar year. So we all, we are better collectively to be prepared for a long haul, for a, for a situation, for a crisis that will certainly increase in size and volume. The RCRC reports the war in Ukraine has caused a sharp increase in fuel and fertilizer prices that, it says, has added significant pressure on farmers, many of whom are weathering the combined impact of conflicts and climate shocks. Youssef says the Horn of Africa is most seriously affected. He notes, however, that other parts of Africa, from Mauritania to the Sahel to Lake Chad, and to a lesser extent, the Central African Republic, are suffering from the effects of the Ukraine crisis. Countries are equally hit, at least those who are, as you mentioned, sir, dependent on grains and wheat from Russia and Ukraine. Somalia is the worst, 90%. But Nigeria has also a large dependency on that, Sudan and South Sudan as well. 
and indeed the situation is extremely difficult for people that are inaccessible for humanitarian organizations such as Somalia. Yusuf says lack of access to people in areas affected by conflict and armed violence, such as Somalia and Burkina Faso, raise the challenges to a different level. The ICRC reports more than 35 armed conflicts are taking place on the continent and around 30 million people are internally displaced and refugees. The Swiss-based humanitarian agency says people uprooted from their homes are particularly vulnerable to extreme weather, fluctuation of food prices and hunger. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. The World Food Programme says the United Nations has been forced to move humanitarian aid and workers across Haiti by air and ship because gang violence has become so bad in the capital, Port-au-Prince. The move comes as aid agencies struggle to tackle a deepening food crisis there. More than 50 people have been killed in clashes between gangs since Friday. WFP Haiti Country Director Jean-Martin Bauer. The first part of the double whammy is violence in Port-au-Prince caused by, by gangs. This violence um, has had impacts on markets, on trade, on livelihoods, and it's um, cut off the city from the rest of Haiti. The roads to the south were cut off a year ago. The roads to the east have been cut off to the Dominican Republic. And the road to the north uh, since May has been very dangerous uh, and has been, uh, we've not been able to use it for, for, for trade or for the uh, uh, sending of humanitarian assistance. The only safe ways out of Port-au-Prince are by sea or by, or by air. Large parts of Port-au-Prince are controlled by gangs. The data we have show that the situation over the past 90 days has gotten worse. And you're at a baseline where Haiti's a very vulnerable place where you already had 1 million people in the city who were acutely food insecure. Uh, so I think that the situation's getting uh, worse by the day. Uh, since uh, Friday, there's been uh, fighting downtown uh, in the port area. Cité Soleil, uh, and yesterday in La Saline, places that are very close to the port and also close to, to where uh, hundreds of thousands of very poor people live. So the situation is getting worse by the day, and we need to, to scale up and we need to act now. That's WFP Haiti Country Director Jean-Martin Bauer. Scientists are reacting with excitement to the first image from the James Webb Space Telescope, the largest and most powerful orbital observatory ever launched. The galaxy-studded image from deep in the cosmos is the first of a series of full-color compelling early high-resolution pictures. They took weeks to render from raw telescope data and are expected to be published by NASA and the Space Telescopic Science Institute this week. A partnership between NASA, the European Space Agency, and the Canadian Space Agency, the Webb, was launched on Christmas Day 2021 and reached its destination in solar orbit nearly one million miles from Earth a month later. Dr. Stephen Wilkins is head of astronomy at the University of Sussex. It's just outstanding. So it was really nice that the very first image is the one that's the most relevant to my own science. So we, we knew that this one was coming. So we've been looking at the, the Hubble version of this image, of this cluster. So this is the cluster that Hubble observed better part of a decade ago. And so we've been doing the comparisons of that and saying, well, it's just, it's just stunning how much more you can see. And less time it was observed for, but you can see so much more detail. You can see objects, like two or three times as many objects compared to the Hubble imaging. So we just want to, you know, we actually want to download the real kind of raw data and start playing around with it. So what this image is doing is, you know, not only seeing much more detail, it's pushing into the infrared. And so potentially there are objects in this image which, 
you know, certainly have never been seen by Hubble. We might be seeing some of the very first stars and galaxies to form in this image. We need to, you know, download the data and start, you know, doing the precise measurements and figure it out. And that's what we're all eager to do. This is like the, the tip of the iceberg. It's the smallest little image. I think this was something like 10 hours worth of data, which, you know, is a good amount. But, you know, we've got a telescope that we might have for the next couple of decades. Just imagine what we can get over that time. And I mean, this is 10, 20 times better than the Hubble image. Yeah, it's just amazing. That's Dr. Stephen Wilkins, head of astronomy at the University of Sussex. Border Crossings. Join host Larry London. Larry London. On Border Crossings, VOA's only worldwide music request hour. Whoa. Every weekday at 1500 Universal. Tune in for the biggest hits and amazing artists, win prizes, and get the latest news from exclusive celebrity interviews. Send your requests to Facebook at VOA Larry London, Twitter at Border Crossings, or Instagram at Border Crossings VOA, or call 202-619-2077 and have your favorite music played to the entire world. Ah. Don't miss Border Crossings every weekday at 1500 Universal, only on The Voice of America. Hello, I'm Carol Castiel. U.S. President Joe Biden makes his first visit to the Middle East as American head of state. There will be less emphasis on resolving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and more focus on countering Iran, shoring up oil reserves, and strengthening ties between Israel and its new Arab allies. Brian Katulis and David Schenker analyze the outcome and impact of Joe Biden's trip to Israel, the West Bank, and Saudi Arabia. That's Encounter this Saturday and Sunday on The Voice of America. And to all our VOA listeners, please note we have moved our programs to a new website, voaafrica.com from voanews.com. There you will find all your favorite VOA radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. Find us on voaafrica.com, and thanks for listening. This has been International Edition on The Voice of America. On behalf of the entire production team, thank you so much for listening. Visit our website for in-depth coverage of world events and news 24 hours a day at voaafrica.com. Until next time, I am Chinedwafo in Washington, wishing you a great day. Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government.
In 2022, the DPRK has launched 31 ballistic missiles, including six intercontinental ballistic missiles, an intermediate-range ballistic missile, and at least two claimed hypersonic glide vehicles. All these launches violated multiple UN Security Council resolutions. In addition, reports indicate that Pyongyang is preparing to conduct a nuclear test for the first time in five years. In the face of these provocations, the United States introduced a resolution at the Security Council in May, strengthening sanctions on the DPRK over its ballistic missile launches. However, for the first time in 15 years, a dangerous division occurred in the Security Council regarding the DPRK. While 13 members voted in favor of the resolution, Russia and the People's Republic of China, two permanent members of the Council, voted to veto it ensuring its defeat. On June 8th, at a discussion of the UN General Assembly over the vetoes cast by Russia and the PRC, Ambassador Jeffrey De Laurentiis, senior advisor for political affairs at the U.S. Mission to the United Nations, said the vetoes showed implicit approval of the DPRK's dangerous and destabilizing actions. Thirteen council members chose to send a strong message to the DPRK that its unlawful WMD and ballistic missile development will not be tolerated and to send a signal to all proliferators that there should be consequences for their behavior. Two did not. Ambassador de Laurentiis noted that earlier this year, Russia and the PRC pledged a no-limits partnership. We hope these vetoes are not a reflection of a partnership elevated above the collective interest of this body or of the multilateral institutions mandated to ensure the safety and security of us all, he said. The United States has repeatedly made clear that it seeks dialogue with Pyongyang without preconditions, and the commitment to a diplomatic path with the DPRK remains. The United States has also made clear that, together with its allies, it will maintain a strong deterrent capacity and will seek implementation of all multilateral and unilateral sanctions. At the UN, Ambassador de Laurentiis declared the United States will continue to work regularly, diligently, and transparently with the Security Council, our allies and partners, and all member states who seek to stop the DPRK's unlawful WMD and ballistic missile programs and uphold the values of non-proliferation. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. 